Hey everyone, it's AJ here, and I've got bad news and I've got medium news. So let's do the bad news first. The bad news is that we're coming up on the Christmas season. Well, I guess that's not bad news. That's actually pretty good news. But the, there is bad news, and the bad news is that I'll be out of town up in Washington visiting my folks, and Graham will be out of town, and Thomas will be having a baby with his wife. They, She will be having the baby. They will have it together. There will, there will be a baby. So I am going to do my best. This is the medium news to, to give you something to listen to during at least a little, little bit of that time, which means I'll be reading a couple of my favorite essays and I might even be reading a couple of Christmas stories in there, kind of reminiscent of when I did quarantine stuff you should know. And I'm hoping it's with, with a little bit more consistency. So this week's episode of, I guess, Christmas stuff you should know is a, one of my favorite essays by Mark Twain. And it's called Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses. Now, I mentioned this way back in episode, I think it was 39, which is How to Write Gooder. And this is where he kind of drags James Fenimore Cooper through the mud for his writing style. And I haven't read any James Fenimore Cooper, partially because I, I take sides. I take sides on this and I like Mark Twain. And if he says Cooper is terrible, then I'm going to believe him and not read Cooper. And it's not like Cooper is some random unknown author. He wrote Last of the Mohicans and The Deerslayer and a few other things. Last of the Mohicans was made into a film with an excellent soundtrack. It's actually a pretty good movie, but apparently the writing is trash. And so this is part one of his invectives against Cooper. There is a second essay that I actually discovered recently. I think it's published during a period when I can read it on on the air. This is in th this first one is in public domain. So stay tuned. I think I, I've got a, a second section coming up here for you. But I'm just going to read through this essay. Shouldn't take me more than, oh, I don't know, about 20 minutes, half an hour, somewhere around there. But it's great. I really enjoy it. This essay is more insult than anything. And then the second essay actually gets into here are the exact reasons why Cooper is terrible. And he proves it by pulling out pieces of his prose and then just sort of doing him a favor and rewriting them for him. So here we go. This is Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses by Mark Twain. And he begins with a couple quotes. The Pathfinder and the Deerslayer stand at the head of Cooper's novels as artistic creations. There are others of his works which contain parts as perfect as are to be found in these and scenes even more thrilling. Not one can be compared with either of them as a finished whole. The defects in both of these tales are comparatively slight. They were pure works of art. And that quote is from Professor Lounsbury. Second quote. The five tales reveal an extraordinary fullness of invention. One of the very greatest characters in fiction, Natty Bumpo, the craft of the woodsman, the tricks of the trapper, all the delicate art of the forest were familiar to Cooper from his youth up. That's from Professor Matthews. Quote number three. Cooper is the greatest artist in the domain of romantic fiction in America. That's from Wilkie Collins. And now we begin Twain's essay, and I'll just try to read it all the way through. It seems to me that it was far from right for the professor of English literature at Yale, the professor of English literature in Columbia, and Wilkie, Wilkie Collins to deliver opinions on Cooper's literature without having read some of it. It would have been much more decorous to keep silent and let persons talk who have read Cooper. Cooper's art has some defects. In one place in Deerslayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record. 
There are 19 rules governing literary art in domain of romantic fiction. Some say 22. In Deerslayer, Cooper violated 18 of them. These 18 require 1. That a tale should accomplish something and arrive somewhere, but the Deerslayer tale accomplishes nothing and arrives in air. 2. They require that the episodes in a tale shall be necessary parts of the tale and shall help to develop it. But as the Deerslayer tale is not a tale and accomplishes nothing and arrives nowhere, the episodes have no rightful place in the work, since there was nothing for them to develop. 3. They require that the personages in a tale shall be alive, except in the case of corpses, and that always the reader shall be able to tell the corpses from the others, but this detail has been often overlooked in the Deerslayer tale. 4. They require that the personages in a tale, both dead and alive, shall exhibit a sufficient excuse for being there, but this detail also has been overlooked in the Deerslayer tale. 5. They require that when the personages of a tale deal in conversation, the talk shall sound like human talk, and be talk such as human beings would be likely to talk in the given circumstances, and have a discoverable meaning, also a discoverable purpose, and a show of relevancy, and remain in the neighborhood of the subject at hand, and be interesting to the reader, and help out the tale, and stop when the people cannot think of anything more to say. But this requirement has been ignored from the beginning of the Deerslayer tale to the end of it. 6. They require that when the author describes the character of a personage in the tale, the conduct and conversation of that personage shall justify said description. But this law gets little or no attention in the Deerslayer tale, as Natty Bumpo's case will amply prove. 6. Or sorry, 7. They require that when a personage talks like an illustrated, gilt-edged, tree-calf, hand-tooled, $7 friendship's offering in the beginning of a paragraph, he shall not sound like a minstrel in the end of it. But this rule is flung down and danced upon in the Deerslayer tale. 8. They require that crass stupidities shall not be played upon the reader as the craft of the woodsman, the delicate art of the forest, by either the author or the people in the tale, but this rule is persistently violated in the Deerslayer tale. 9. They require that the personages of a tale shall confine themselves to possibilities and let miracles alone, or if they venture a miracle, the author must so plausibly set it forth as to make it look possible and reasonable, but these rules are not respected in the Deerslayer tale. 10. They require that the author shall make the reader feel a deep interest in the personages of his tale and in their fate, and that he shall make the reader love the good people in the tale and hate the bad ones. But the reader of the Deerslayer tale dislikes the good people in it, is indifferent to the others, and wishes they would all get drowned together. 11. They require that the characters in a tale shall be so clearly defined that the reader can tell beforehand what each will do in a given emergency. But in the Deerslayer tale, this rule is vacated. In addition to these large rules, there are some little ones. These require that the author shall. 12. Say what he is proposing to say, not merely come near it. 13. Use the right word, not its second cousin. 14. Eschew surplusage. 15. Not omit necessary details. 16. Avoid slovenliness of form. 17. Use good grammar. And 18. Employ a simple and straightforward style. Even these seven are coldly and persistently violated in the Deerslayer tale. 
Cooper's gift, in the way of invention, was not a rich endowment, but such as it was, he liked to work it. He was pleased with the effects, and indeed he did some quite sweet things with it. In his little box of stage properties, he kept six or eight cunning devices, tricks, artifices for his savages and woodsmen to deceive and circumvent each other with, and he was never so happy as when he was working these innocent things and seeing them go. A favorite one was to make a moccasined person tread in the tracks of a moccasined enemy and thus hide his own trail. Cooper wore out barrels and barrels of moccasins in working that trick. Another stage property that he pulled out of his box pretty frequently was the broken twig. He prized his broken twig above all the rest of his effects and worked it the hardest. It is a restful chapter in any book of his when somebody doesn't step on a dry twig and alarm all the people for 200 yards around. Every time a Cooper person is in peril and absolute silence is worth $4 a minute, he is sure to step on a dry twig. There may be a hundred other handier things to step on, but that wouldn't satisfy Cooper. Cooper requires him to turn out and find a dry twig, and if he can't do it, go and borrow one. In fact, the leather stocking series ought to have been called the Broken Twig series. I am sorry that there is not room to put in a few dozen instances of the delicate art of the forest as practiced by Natty Bumpo and some of the other Cooperian experts. Perhaps we may venture two or three samples. Cooper was a sailor, a naval officer, yet he gravely tells us how a vessel driving toward a lee shore in a gale is steered for a particular spot by her skipper because he knows of an undertow there which will hold her back against the gale and save her. For just pure woodcraft, or sailorcraft, or whatever it is, isn't that neat? For several years, Cooper was in uh, was daily in the Society of Artillery, and he ought to have noticed that when a cannonball strikes the ground, it either buries itself or skips a hundred feet or so. Skips a hundred feet or so, and so on, till it finally gets tired and rolls. Now, in one place, he loses some females, as he always calls women, in the edge of a wood near a plain at night in a fog, on purpose, to give Bumpo a chance to show off the delicate art of the forest before the reader. These mislaid people are hunting for a fort. They hear a cannon blast, and a cannonball presently comes rolling into the wood and stops at their feet. To the females, this suggests nothing. The case is very different with the admirable Bumpo. I wish I may never know peace again if he doesn't strike out promptly and follow the track of that cannonball across the plain in the dense fog and find the fort. Isn't it a daisy? If Cooper had any real knowledge of nature's way of doing things, he had a most delicate art in concealing the fact. For instance, one of his acute Indian experts, Chingachgook, pronounced Chicago, I think, has lost the trail of a person he is tracking through the forest. Apparently that trail is hopelessly lost. Neither you nor I could ever have guessed the way to find it. It was very different with Chicago. Chicago was not stumped for long. He turned a running stream out of its course, and there, in the slush in its old bed, were that person's moccasin tracks. The current did not wash them away, as it would have done in all other cases. No, even the eternal laws of nature have to vacate when Cooper wants to pull up a delicate job of woodcraft on the reader. We must be a little wary when Brander Matthews tells us that Cooper's books reveal an extraordinary fullness of invention. As a rule, I'm quite willing to accept Brander Matthews' literary judgments and applaud his lucid and graceful phrasing of them, but that particular statement needs to be taken with a few tons of salt. Bless your heart, Cooper hadn't any more invention than a horse, and 
I don't mean a high-class horse either. I mean a clothes horse. I would be, it would be very difficult to find a really clever situation in Cooper's books, and still more difficult to find one of any kind, which has failed to, failed to render absurd by his handling, handling of it. Look at the episode of The Caves, and the, at the celebrated scuffle between Makwa and those others on the table land a few days later, and a Hurry Harry's queer water transit from the castle to the ark, and at Deerslayer's half hour with his first corpse, and at the quarrel between Hurry Harry and Deerslayer later, and at, but choose for yourself, you can't go amiss. If Cooper had been an observer, his inventive, facu- inventive faculty would have worked better, not more interestingly, but more rationally, more plausibly. Cooper's proudest creations in the way of situations suffer noticeably from the absence of the observer's protecting gift. Cooper's eye was splendidly inaccurate. Cooper seldom saw anything correctly. He saw nearly all things as through a glass eye darkly. Of course, a man who cannot see the commonest little everyday matters accurately is working at a disadvantage when he is constructing a situation. In the Deerslayer tale, Cooper has a stream, which is 50 feet wide where it flows out of a lake. It presently narrows to 20 as it meanders along for no given reason, and yet when a stream acts like that, it ought to be required to explain itself. 14 pages later, the width of the brook's outlet from the lake has suddenly shrunk 30 feet and becomes the narrowest part of the stream. This shrinkage is not accounted for. The stream has bends in it, a sure indication that it has alluvial banks and cuts them, yet these bends are only 30 and 50 feet long. If Cooper had been a nice and punctilious observer, he would have noticed that the bends were often 900 feet long than short of it. Cooper made the exit of that stream 50 feet wide. In the first place, for no particular reason. In the second place, he narrowed it to less than 20 to accommodate some Indians. He bends a sapling to form an arch over this narrow passage and conceals six Indians in his foliage. They are laying for a settler's scow or ark which is coming up the stream on its way to the lake. It is being hauled against the stiff current by a rope whose stationary end is anchored in the lake. Its rate of progress cannot be more than a mile an hour. Cooper describes the ark, but pretty obscurely. In the matter of dimensions, it was little more than a modern canal boat. Let us guess, then, that it was about 140 feet long. It was of greater breadth than common, so let us guess that it was about 16 feet wide. This leviathan had been prowling down bends which were but um, which were but a third as long as itself. Sorry, the, the text I'm reading is very wide, so keeping track of line breaks is tough. Okay, back into it. It was which were but a third as long as itself, and scraping between the banks where it had only two feet of space to spare on each side. We cannot too much admire this miracle. A low-roofed dwelling occupies two-thirds of the ark's length, a dwelling 90 feet long and 16 feet wide, let us say, a kind of vestibule train. The dwelling has two rooms, each 45 feet long and 16 feet wide, let us guess. One of them is the bedroom of the Hutter girls, Judith and Hetty. The other is the parlor in the daytime. At night, it is Papa's bedchamber. The ark is arriving at the stream's exit now, whose, vest, whose width has been reduced to less than 20 feet to accommodate the Indians, say, to 18. There is a foot to spare on each side of the boat. Did the Indians notice that there was going to be a tight squeeze there? Did they notice that they could make money by climbing down out of that arch sapling and just stepping aboard when the ark scraped by? No, other Indians would have noticed these things, but Cooper's Indians never notice anything. Cooper thinks they are marvelous creatures for noticing, but he was almost always in error about his Indians. There was seldom a sane Wong among them. 
The Ark is 140 feet long. The dwelling is 90 feet long. The idea of the Indians is to drop down softly and secretly from the arch sapling to the dwelling as the Ark creeps along under it at the rate of a mile an hour. And the Butcher family. Creep on, uh, yeah. It will take the Ark a minute. Oh, and Butcher the family. That makes a lot more sense. They want to drop down and Butcher the family. Okay. It will take the Ark a minute and a half to pass under. It will take the 90 foot dwelling a minute to pass under. Now then, what did the six Indians do? It would take you 30 years to guess, and even then you would have to give it up, I believe. Therefore, I will tell you what the Indians did. Their chief, a person of quite extraordinary intellect for a Cooper Indian, warily watched the canal boat as it squeezed along under him, and when he had got his calculations fined down to exactly the right shade, as he judged, he let go and dropped, and missed the boat. That is exactly what he did. He missed the house and landed in the stern of the scow. It was not much of a fall, yet it knocked him silly and he lay there unconscious. If the house had been 97 feet long, he would have made the trip. The error lay in the construction of the house. Well, Cooper was no architect. There still remained in the roost five Indians. The boat had passed under and is now out of their reach. Let me explain what the five did. You would not be able to reason it out for yourself. Number one jumped for the boat, but fell in the water astern of it. Then number two jumped for the boat, but fell in the water still further astern of it. Then number three jumped for the boat and fell a good way astern of it. Then number four jumped for the boat and fell in the water away astern. Then even number five made a jump for the boat, for he was a Cooper Indian. In the matter of intellect, the difference between a Cooper Indian and the Indian that stands in front of the cigar shop is not spacious. The scow episode is really a sublime burst of invention, but it does not thrill because the inaccuracy of details throw a sort of air of fictitiousness and general improbability over it. This comes of Cooper's inadequacy as observer. The reader will find some examples of Cooper's high talent for inaccurate observation in the account of the shooting match in The Pathfinder. A common, and this is a uh, quote, quote, a common wrought nail was driven lightly into the target, its head having been first touched with paint, end quote. The color of the paint is not stated, an important omission, but Cooper deals freely in important omissions. No, after all, it was not an important omission, for this nail head is a hundred yards from the marksman and could not be seen at that distance, no matter what its color might be. How far can the best eyes see a common house fly? A hundred yards? It is quite impossible. Very well, eyes that cannot see a house fly that is a hundred yards away cannot see an ordinary nail head at that distance, for the size of the two objects is the same. It takes a keen eye to see a fly or a nail head at 50 yards, 150 feet. Can the reader do it? The nail was lightly driven, its head painted, and game called. Then the Cooper miracles began. The bullet of the first marksman chipped an edge of the nail head, the next man's bullet drove the nail a little way into the target and removed all the paint. Haven't the miracles gone far enough now? Not to suit Cooper, for the purpose of this whole scheme is to show off his prodigy, Deerslayer, Hawkeye, Long, long Rifle, Leatherstocking, Pathfinder, Bumpo, before the ladies. Quote, Be all ready to clench it, boys! cried out Pathfinder, stepping into his friend's tracks the instant they were vacant. Never mind a new nail, I can see that, though the paint is gone, and when I can see what I can see, I can hit it a hundred yards, though it were only a mosquito's eye. Be ready to clinch! The rifle cracked, the bullet sped its way, and the head of the nail was buried in the wood, covered by the piece of flattened lead. End quote. 
There, you see, is a man who could hunt flies with a rifle and command a ducal salary in a Wild West show today if we had him back with us. The recorded feat is certainly surprising just as it stands, but it is not surprising enough for Cooper. Cooper adds a touch. He has made Pathfinder do this miracle with another man's rifle. And not only that, but Pathfinder did not even have the advantage of loading it himself. He had everything against him, and yet he made that impossible shot, and not only made it, but did it with absolute confidence, saying, be ready to clinch. Now, a person like that would have undertaken the same feat with a brickbat, and with Cooper to help, he would have achieved it too. Pathfinder showed off handsomely that day before the ladies, his very first feat a thing which no Wild West show can touch. He was standing with the group of marksmen, observing, a hundred yards from the target, mind, one Jasper raised his rifle and drove the center of the bullseye, then the quartermaster fired. The target exhibited no results this time, and there was a laugh. It's a dead miss, said Major Lundy. Pathfinder waited an impressive moment or two, then said, in that calm, indifferent, know-it-all way of his, No, Major, he just covered Jasper's bullet, as will be seen if anyone will take the trouble to examine the target. Wasn't it remarkable? How could he see that little pellet fly through the air and enter that distant bullet hole? Yet, that is what he did, for nothing is impossible to a Cooper person. Did any of those people have any deep-seated doubts about this thing? No, for that would imply sanity. And these were all Cooper people. Quote, The respect for Pathfinder's skill and for his quickness and accuracy of sight, italics mine, was so profound in general that the instant he made this declaration, the spectators began to distrust their own opinions, and a dozen rushed to the target in order to ascertain the fact. There, sure enough, it was found that the quartermaster's bullet had gone through the hole made by Jasper's, and that, too, so accurately as to require a minute examination to be certain of the circumstance, which, however, was soon clearly established by discovering one bullet over the other in the stump against which the target was placed." They made a minute examination, but never mind. How could they know that there were two bullets in that hole without digging the latest latest one out? For neither probe nor eyesight could prove the presence of any more than one bullet. Did they dig? No, as we shall see. It is the Pathfinder's turn now. He steps out before the ladies, takes aim, and fires. But alas, here's a disappointment. In incredible and unimaginable disappointment, for the target's aspect is unchanged. There is nothing there but that same old bullet hole. Quote, If one dared to hint at such a thing, cried Major Duncan, I should say that the Pathfinder has missed the target. End quote. As nobody had missed it yet, the also was not necessary. But never mind about that, for the Pathfinder's going to speak. Quote, No, no, Major, said he confidently. That would be a rescue de- declaration. I didn't load the piece, and I can't say what was in it, but if it was lead, you'll find the bullet driving down those of the Quartermaster and Jasper, else... Is not my name Pathfinder? A shout from the target announced the truth of this assertion. End quote. Is the miracle sufficient as it stands? Not for Cooper. The Pathfinder speaks again as he now slowly advances towards the, towards the stage occupied by the females. Quote, that's not all, boys. That's not all. If you find the target touched at all, I'll own to a miss. The quartermaster cut the wood, but you'll find no wood cut by that last messenger. End quote. The miracle is at last complete. He knew, doubtless, saw, at the distance of a hundred yards, that his bullet had passed into the hole without fraying the edges. There were now three bullets in that one hole. 
three bullets embedded processionally in the body of the stump back of the target. Everybody knew this, somehow or other, and yet nobody had dug any of them out to make sure. Cooper is not a close observer, but he is interesting. He is certainly always that, no matter what happens. And he is more interesting when he is not noticing what he is about than when he is. This is a considerable merit. The conversation in the Cooper books have a curious sound in our modern ears. To believe that such talk really ever came out of people's mouths would be to believe that there was a time when time was of no value to a person who thought he had something to say, when it was the custom to spread a two-minute remark out to ten, when a man's mouth was a rolling mill and busied itself all day long in turning four-foot pigs of thought into thirty-foot bars of conversational railroad iron by attenuation, when subjects were seldom faithfully stuck to, but the talk wandered all around and arrived nowhere, when conversations consisted mainly of irrelevancies with here and there irrelevancy, irrelevancy with an embarrassed look as not being able to explain how it got there. Cooper was certainly not a master in the construction of dialogue. Inaccurate observation defeated him here as it defeated him in so many other enterprises of his life. He even failed to notice that the man who talks corrupt English six days in the week must and will talk it on the seventh, and can't help himself. In the Deerslayer story, he lets Deerslayer talk the showiest kind of book talk sometimes, and at other times the basest of base dialects. For instance, when someone asks him if he has a sweetheart, and if so, where she abides, this is his majestic answer. She's in the forest, hanging from the boughs of the trees in a soft rain, in the dew on the open grass, the clouds that float about in the blue heaven, the birds that sing in the woods, the sweet springs where I slake my thirst, and in the other glorious gifts that come from God's providence. End quote. And he preceded that a little before with this. Quote, it concerns me as all things that touches a friend concerns a friend. End quote. And this is another of his remarks. If I was engine born now, I might tell of this or carry in the scalp and boast of the exploit before the whole tribe of if my enemy had only been a bear, and so on. We cannot imagine such things as a veteran Scotch commander in chief comporting himself like a windy melodramatic actor, but Cooper could. On one occasion, Alice and Cora were being chased by the French through, the, through a fog in the neighborhood of their father's fort. Quote, Point de quartieros conquins, cried an eager pursuer, who seemed to direct the operation of the enemy. Stand firm and be ready, my gallant sixtieths, suddenly exclaimed a voice above them. Wait to see the enemy, fire low and sweep the glaciers. Father, father, exclaimed a piercing cry from out of the mist. It is I, Alice, thy own Elsie, spare, oh, save your daughters. Hold! shouted the former speaker, in the awful tones of parental agony, the sound reaching even to the woods and rolling back in solemn echo. Tis she! God has restored me my children! Throw open the sally port to the field, sixtieth! To the field! Pull not a trigger lest ye kill my lambs! Drive off these dogs off France with your steel! Uh, sorry, drive off these dogs of France with your steel. End quote. Cooper's word sense was singularly dull. When a person has a poor ear for music, he will fall flat and sharp right along without knowing it. He keeps near the tune, but is not the tune. When a person has a poor ear for words, the result is a literary flattening and sharping. You realize what he is intending to say, but you also perceive that he does not say it. This is Cooper. He was not a word musician. His ear was satisfied with approximate words. 
I will furnish some circumstantial evidence in support of this charge. My instances are gathered from half a dozen pages of the tale called Deerslayer. He uses verbal for oral, precision for facility, phenomena for marvels, necessary for predetermined, unsophisticated for primitive, preparation for expectancy, rebuked for subdued, dependent on for resulting from, fact for condition, fact for conjecture, precaution for caution, explain for determine, mortified for disappointed, meretricious for factitious, materially for considerably, decreasing for deepening, increasing for disappearing, embedded for enclosed, treacherous for hostile, stood for stooped, softened for replaced, rejoined for remarked, situation for condition, different for differing, insensible for unsentient, brevity for celerity, distrusted for suspicious, mental imbecility for imbecility, eyes for sight, counteracting for opposing, funeral obsequies, obsequies? I don't know how to pronounce that. Obsequies? For obsequies. There have been daring people in the world who claimed that Cooper could write English, but they are all dead now. All dead, but Lounsbury. I don't remember that Lounsbury makes the claim in so many words. Still, he makes it, for he says that Deerslayer is a pure work of art. Pure in that connection means faultless, faultless in all details. And language is a detail. If Mr. Lounsbury had only compared Cooper's English with the English he writes himself, but it is plain that he didn't. And so it is likely that he imagines until this day that Cooper is, Cooper's is as clean and compact as his own. Now, I feel sure, deep down in my heart, that Cooper wrote about the poorest English that exists in our language, and that the English of Deerslayer is the very worst that even Cooper ever wrote. I may be mistaken, but it does seem to me that Deerslayer is not a work of art in any sense. It does seem to me that it is destitute of every detail that goes to the making of a work of art. In truth, it seems to me that Deerslayer is just simply, simply a literary delirium tremens. A work of art? It has no invention. It has no order, system, sequence, or result. It has no life-likeness, no thrill, no stir, no seeming of reality. Its characters are confusedly drawn, and by their acts and words they prove that they are not the sort of people the author claims that they are. Its humor is pathetic, its pathos is funny, its conversations are, oh, indescribable its love scenes odious, its English a crime against the language. Counting these out, what is left is art. I think we must all admit that. And that is the end of the essay. Uh, sorry for the, the old way of referring to Native Americans there. You know, that's, it's in the original in the original essay, there's a couple things I left out just for, you know, sensitivity reasons. Uh, but for the most part, that's, that's as it was. And it's one of my favorite essays that he wrote. He's just not kind to poor Cooper. And if you're coming away from this feeling like, well, it wasn't quite fair. Uh, you, you know, withhold your judgment until you heard, hear that second essay. I think he gives a little more evidence as far as the actual writing craft in that second one. I think this one's examples of unbelievable situations are pretty good. Okay, anyway, I will hopefully have a few more of these coming at you over the next few weeks and maybe some to tide you over during Christmas. And until then, I, I wish you guys a merry holiday season. Happy holidays from all the boys of classical stuff. And this is AJ signing off.